And today I want to have us look at some of the spiritual disciplines in regards to our losing a first love. Now when I talk about spiritual disciplines, I'm talking about, for example, prayer. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. If you don't think it's, it takes discipline to be consistent in prayer, try to establish a regular prayer time every day at a certain time for a certain amount of time. And you'll soon find that is definitely a discipline. Fasting is a discipline. Giving to the Lord's work is a discipline. Bible study is a discipline. Christian service is a Christian discipline. Now, the thing that I want you to see about these disciplines is we have a tendency to go one way or another if we do them or if we don't do them. If we do them, the tendency is to swell up spiritually and say, boy, I want you to know, I'm a, if you have any spiritual problems, come to me because I'll have the answer. Spiritual pride tends to enter in. I can say that because I've seen it happen many times in my life. You know, it's the type of person who comes around and said, I, I just want to say to the glory of God now that I'm praying at least two hours a day. My, what a spiritual experience I'm having with two hours of prayer a day or three hours of prayer a day or whatever it is. You, you see it coming or someone that's been fasting, you know, they'll come around and say, well, no one else knows what fasting is until they fasted like I have for 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, I want you to know that it's a glorious experience to just revel in the heavenlies in a 40-day fast. You ever had that experience come around you? That's one of the dangerous things, isn't it? When it comes to giving, you ever had somebody come around and tell you, well, glory to God, I want you to know the Lord allowed me this past week to give $2,000 to such and such a project, and, you know, really they couldn't have made it if uh, I hadn't been able to put that type of money into it. I'm not making fun of them. I'm simply showing you that this is the danger that we enter into when we talk about spiritual disciplines. That's one of the first dangers we get into. If it's Bible study, before long we become Pharisees. Before long, I mean, if you've got any spiritual problems, ask me. I've got the answers. Whether it's reading the Bible or reading a bunch of spiritual books or whatever it might be, before long, if we're not careful, we'll suddenly come into the place, well, nobody has to teach me anymore because the Lord has taught me just about everything there is to know. And whenever that happens, I want you to know, though, it is God that is at work in our lives, even in those situations, because before long, he says a proud look comes before, just before what? <laughs> That's right. And, and God says, remember, the way up is down, and the way down is up. It's just the opposite, and when a person starts going up, God says, okay, now I'm going to have to let the air out of your sails. Now, this is one thing that I've said down through the years. I thank God for a godly wife who knows when to lift me up and when to put me down. And she knows when to let the air out of my sails and she knows when to help build me up when I'm down too low. But God does that same thing in our lives, but many times in our spiritual disciplines, we find that the tendency is either to get proud or to get discouraged. Say, we don't pray, and we don't, oh boy, now I'm really in a mess. I should be doing it. I know I should be doing it. Or we pray and pray and pray and nothing happens and discouragement comes. What's the use of praying? God uses both of those elements of pride and discouragement in working in our lives to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ because both of them eventually will bring us to a greater sense of need of Him. When the time comes that God reveals to us just how pompous and proud we are, then He can begin to deal with our lives. When God begins to cause us to get our eyes off of what we're looking for as the end result or the answers to prayer, and we begin to say, Lord, I'm not going to look at the problem, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to encourage myself and you even as David did when everything seemed so dark, then God's able to use those experiences in our lives. So I'm simply saying, don't let either experience get you down, but look at it as an opportunity for God to reveal something new in your life that he's trying to show you.
You know, we feel many times that the more faithful we are, the more we become aware of how spiritual we are. But that's not always so. If you and I begin to really get into God's Word and really get into prayer and really get into meditation and really begin to seek God, the end result should not be a sense of, wow, have I ever arrived. If you want to see the evidence of that, you should read the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul started off, he says, I am the last of the apostles. And as he continued his walk with Jesus Christ, he said, I am the least of the apostles. And then he went on and said, I am less than the least of the apostles. And then when he really got spiritual, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. The greatest spiritual man around will be that man that is constantly humbled before the Lord and before men. When I see a man who is puffed up, I can pretty well mark it down that he is not a big man in God's work. It's when I see a man who can weep with those that weep and laugh with those that laugh and just witness to your spirit, no matter who you are or where you are, has a tender heart before God and man. There is a great man. I remember Dr. Paul Reese, who was a godly man, still is a godly man, working with uh, World Vision. My wife and I used to attend his church in Minneapolis, First Covenant Church in Minneapolis, because he was such a profound Bible teacher. When he'd sit there, my mouth would just drop open, and I'd say, wasn't that fantastic? And afterwards, I'd say, how can I ever say what he said, though? It was just incredible, but he loved God. And the thing that amazed me one time, I was just casually walking into his office as a Bible college student, now, that's the lowest degree of lowest degrees when you walk in as a Bible college student in a big church like that. And I just asked if they happened to have one of his monthly papers that had a message in it. He came walking out of that study, and he walked over, and he put his arms around me. He said, young man, what's your name? And I told him, and he said, well, we're just so glad to have you here today. He said, are you studying for the ministry? I said, yes, sir. And he said, why don't you come in? And I said, now, wait a minute. He said, I want you to know I don't ever do this with anyone else. But I think that I need to take you back and show you my workshop. And he took me beyond his office back into another room that was his workshop where he had books all over the walls and rows of books down the middle of the room and huge desks and books and papers all over. Just a great big mess. He said, now don't you tell anyone. But he said, this is where I do my work back here. And as we talked, I saw tears come in his eyes and he said, young man, I want to pray for you. And I walked out of there feeling that I had really met a godly man. A man that knew what it was to walk with God but was sensitive in his spirit to others round about him. And I thank God for that. When you and I come to the place where we're really what God wants us to be, people are going to find that we are approachable. Nothing concerns me more than when I hear people say, well, Pastor Webb is hard to get to know. If I am, it's because you aren't trying. Now, take that. I love people, and I want to know people. I don't ever want anybody to think I'm going around with a stiff arm. I'm not. And God help me if I ever do. But the word does say if a man were to have friends, he must show himself to be friendly. And you be friendly and it's contagious. Praise the Lord. When we come to that same direction that Paul came to, that the more he knew the Lord and the further he walked with the Lord, the more he realized his inadequacy, then God is able to do a work in our lives that he desires to do. I have to share something with you. If you had asked me some questions of theology when I first got out of Bible college, I could have given you any answer you wanted. I, I, I had it all nailed down tight. The longer I'm in the ministry, the more I realize how little I know and how much I have to depend on the Holy Spirit for direction and guidance and wisdom in my daily decisions in the ministry. But I want you to know that Jesus gives comfort in that fact. 
I don't feel more insecure. I feel more inadequate and have to depend on the Lord more. And my security is in Him and that's where it ought to be. But Jesus Himself said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I think that we'd call this poverty of spirit, poor in spirit, to where we recognize that we can do nothing of ourselves. That's the first important step that we have to learn as a Christian. And when we come to that place, then we have to totally depend on the Lord, and that's what establishes our first love. This is a very crude illustration, but I, I guess this is the best way to say it. I, this past week again, the Lord has just made me more and more aware of the fact that I've been married to a young lady for 22 years. And I realize more and more every day how much I depend on her. And I had to stop this week and say, I just want to tell you again how sorry I am that I don't tell you more that I, how much I appreciate you, how much I love you, and what you mean to me, just, just being there. And when I said that afterwards, it's just like the Lord spoke to me and says, now that's how I want you to be toward me, constantly looking to me for needs, your needs and your problems, and never taking me for granted. And when we talked about prayer before, it was interesting as to how we approach God in prayer, but I said that prayer can maintain our first love. But I think it's important as we pray that we analyze our prayers. What is the motive behind our prayers? If we'll listen, it'll reveal some tremendous things to us. What do we pray? How do we pray? When do we pray? And why do we pray? When we pray, do our requests emphasize the advancing of God's kingdom? Do we pray for our missionaries with an earnest hunger and desire to see God manifest himself in them in, in his power, that many will be one to Christ? Do we pray for our pastor, for our Sunday school teachers, for our church officers? Do we pray for our neighbors that God will save them, that God will use us as an instrument to save them? How do we pray? What, the, what constitutes the most of our prayers? Do our prayers constitute asking God to build up our future reserves so we don't have to depend on him so much tomorrow? Which one is it? God, if you'll just give me this job, then I won't have to worry anymore. I'll have money in the bank and in my savings account. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. Understand me. But I'm saying the motive behind our prayers is that motive, boy, when I finally get that much money, then I can kind of just take it easy. In the meantime, God, you're just keeping me on the edge of my seat. I'm having to wait on you. I'm having to depend on you for everything. God, I'd just love to come to place. I don't have to ask you for anything for a couple of weeks. What's the motive of our prayer? You see, the evidence of the first love being in our lives is the fact that no matter how much we have in a savings account, He is still our source and will always be our source. And then we have to ask Him, Lord, what would you have me to do with that which you've given me? How about confession in our prayer time? First of all, we're talking about our requests, but now our confessions. I think that it's advantageous for each of us in our prayer time to have what... I believe as Bill Gothard said, is a hall of shame. Have any of you established your hall of shame? To where you can go back and remember the unworthiness that you have experienced or the things that you've done in your past that cause you to realize how much you need to depend on the Lord. Lord, I don't dare let go of you. Lord, I don't dare turn my back on you because if I do, I'll fail. I've seen it. Lord, I've failed back there when I didn't watch after you. If I didn't follow after you, Lord, I failed when I didn't listen to you back there. Father, I see these things and I want that hall of shame to bring me to an awareness how much I need to lean on you. Lord, I just confess my inadequacy to you. Do we feel inadequate? 
When you get up in the morning, do you feel, well, glory to God, here's another day, I'll take it on. Or, Lord, this is the day you've made. I, I'm going to trust you moment by moment for every decision, for every confrontation, for every person I might come in contact with today. I'm going to trust you by the Spirit of God to work through me to make Jesus Christ known to them. Lord, I've got decisions to make today. I give them to you right now, and I ask you to give me the understanding to know how to make those decisions. I'm going to trust you moment by moment for it. Now, the difference is that it differs between I'm making the decisions or, Lord, I stand here depending on you to give me the discernment to know how these decisions ought to be made. It'll expose in our lives how much we really do need to claim his power and his strength. And then how about in the area of thanksgiving? You know, if you and I have difficulty giving thanks to the Lord, it's evidence that we aren't depending upon him much and he's not answering very much. Do you ever think about that? If he hasn't given you much cause for thanksgiving, then there must not be much of a sense of need in your life to where you're crying out to him to answer prayer in your life. If you walk through life saying, well, I can pay that bill, no problem about that whatsoever, but, but Lord, I'm not going to have to depend on you for that one. Then when the time for thanksgiving comes, it's not present. There's not a reason for that thanksgiving. But if we day by day have to say, Lord, I ask you for an answer in this. I ask you to direct me in this. Lord, I ask you for this opportunity. And as those doors open, you begin to just praise the Lord and worship him for all the answers to prayer. If you can come into that time of thanksgiving with a sense of thanksgiving to him, it's evidence that you have walked in an attitude with a sense of need of him day by day. And he is answering those prayers and giving you cause. That's why David, time and time again in the psalm, says, Oh, that men, oh, that men, oh, that men would praise the Lord over and over and over. And then the area of intercession. Do you and I intercede for others in need? The more we do, the more it's going to build within us an awareness of God's presence being needed in our life that we might be a witness to others for whom we pray or an encouragement to others for whom we pray. The more we pray about the needs of other people, the more we're going to have opportunity and reason to pray. When we meet them the next time, I've been praying about this need in your life. What has God done in that area of your life? If nothing yet, you keep trusting the Lord and I'm going to keep praying. And you know, if you do that, before long, people are going to look forward to you coming around because they know here's someone who's really concerned. And the Word of God says... Bear ye one another's burdens that you might fulfill the what? The law of Christ. That's a law. And if you don't do it, you're breaking a law. If you don't bear one another's burdens, you're breaking a law. And if you're breaking that law, you certainly can't say that you still have the first love. Because Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. And if we have love for one another, we're going to bear one another's burdens. I don't want you to look around right now, but just put this in your spirit for a moment. How many in this body have you prayed for in the last week? How many in this past week have you held up before the Lord with a specific need? You say, well, Brother Webb, I don't know any of the needs. In well, shame on you. If you don't know the needs of the different ones in the church, then there's evidence that someone isn't being friendly. You say, well, I don't know them. Do you know what the best way to have someone get to know you? Walk up and show them nothing but hands and teeth. Tell them who you are and what you, where you're from and find out who they are and ask them about themselves. Get to know a little bit more about them. And if you ever get a chance, invite them over for some coffee. After Sunday night church, 
for lunch on Sunday noon. Try it. You'll like it. And then when you get to know them and they begin to open up to you, God will give you another area of being able to minister in this body. Now, when it comes to Bible study, another one of the disciplines, when we get into Bible study and meditation on the Word of God, I want you to know that, first of all, it should cause us to grow, but you're going to find as you get into the Word of God, rather than just causing you to grow, the first thing it's going to do is cause you to have a sense of how much you need to grow. I remember as a new Christian, as I went to work the next day at the old flour mill back in Nebraska, my sister gave me a little New Testament to put in my pocket, and instead of having the other thing in my pocket that I'd jerk out during every break, and I'd consume two and a half packs a day, I'd reach in and take that little New Testament out, and I'd begin to read it, and as I read it, I thought, oh, Lord, how's that ever going to happen in my life? Oh, and I almost got discouraged, but that's exactly what the Spirit of God wanted to have happen when I began to read the Word of God. Someone says you can't live in sin and read the Word of God. It says this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. You want to write that in the front of your Bible, it's a good thing to put. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And as you get into the book and begin to read it, all of a sudden they'll whelm up in you almost a desperation. Oh God, how can that ever be true in my life? Well, I don't think I'll ever attain unto it. And the beautiful thing of that is that's what drives us to the Lord. Lord, how am I ever going to, Lord, I can't, Lord, I just leave it with you. I'm just going to trust you, Lord. You're going to have to do it in my life. I can't do it. The word says, as newborn babes desire the milk of the word. And as new Christians, you begin to get a hunger for the word of God. It gives you a sense of need. And then that sense of need gives you a greater sense of need for the word of God. You see how it works? At first you think, wow, it's just overwhelming me. But then you begin to realize that's my source. That's my food. That's where I'm going to get it. When we see God's word standard, we, we can tend to become discouraged. But God doesn't want us to become discouraged. He said, There is no temptation taken you and me, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer us to be tempted above that we are able, but will with that temptation make a way of escape so we can bear it. God says, That's all right. I'm leading you. You walk patiently. You just be obedient as best you know how day by day, and I'll bring you into a likeness of my son. God says he'll be faithful in doing that. But when you begin to look at the word level and start to get, get discouraged, that's what makes you and me cry out for God's love and for God's grace and for God's mercy and for God's forgiveness. And we begin to find verses that tell us He knoweth our frame that is but of dust. God is merciful. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. He remembereth that we are dust, and as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. I can't tell you how many times I have gone back to those verses and thanked God for them. But these are some of the disciplines that as Christians we need to understand how God deals in our lives. As I said to you, first of all, when it, when it comes to prayer, we may feel lifted up sometimes and get proud, or we may be discouraged, and God says, that's all right, I can use both of them, as Day by day, we begin to say, Lord, I want your perfect will in my heart and life. First of all, I want to say to you that I'm going to be talking especially about what God's Word has to say concerning the tithe, but that's only one small portion of what God has to say about giving. I believe with all my heart that, that everything that you and I have belongs to the Lord. Your talents, your abilities, and let me say that if you return your tithe to the Lord, but you are keeping your talents and abilities and time strictly for yourself, you're just as disobedient as though you didn't bring your tithe. 
I believe that. If everything we have belongs to the Lord, then if you only return your tithe and you refuse to use your time and talent for the Lord proportionally also, you're just as disobedient. Because we have declared, when we come to Calvary, we are declared that I have been bought with a price. I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. Therefore, the life that now is living within me is not my life, but it's the life of Christ being lived out through me because I died on the cross with Him, and now that I live, it's His life living through me. And I am simply an instrument of the Lord's. So the other 90% of my income belongs to the Lord, and I have to ask Him what He'd have me to do with that. And all my time and all my talent is His, a gift from Him to be used in the ministering to the body and to those in need. Now I know that there have been some that have lately brought in the teaching that tithing is not for today. Tithing is under the law. It's under the old covenant and not under the new covenant. I want to show you that its very premise is false. I think it's very, very important for us to have this very clearly understood in our hearts. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I understood this before I ever became a pastor. And I know it's a vital part of obedience on the part of a Christian. And if we're not obedient, God will not and cannot bless us as he wants to. Now, we're going to start off talking about the first tithe. The first point is in Genesis 14, 20. Concerning Abraham to Melchizedek. Going right back to the very beginning concerning stewardship. Now, in order for you to understand completely this premise that I'm going to build on, I have to give you a little background. Abraham was not a Jew until called by God, and then they were called Jews, and later after Jacob was born and had 12 sons, they were called Israelites. But before Jacob ever became a Jew as such, he was, he was given a call by God to come out of the land of the Ur of the Chaldees and to come into a land that God would show him. And when he did it, when he came into that land, then God made a covenant with him. And that's found in the 15th chapter, so don't go there yet. Now, in the 12th chapter, God just says, get out of the land and go into the land, I'll show you and I'll bless you and I'll make a mighty nation of you. But he did not make the covenant agreement with him until chapter 15. But in chapter 14 and verse 20, we find that as a background, Abraham had been, you remember Abraham had gone out of the land of the earth of the Chaldees into the land that God had called him to, and when he came in, he said to Lot, who was not supposed to be with him, you go to the left and I'll go to the right, you go to the right and I'll go to the left. And so he went off to the right to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham went to the left, and God says, now look out on the land, everything you see I'm going to give to you. Later on, because of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, other kings came against the cities and conquered them and took Lot and his family and loved ones and took them away into captivity. And when Abraham heard about it, he took off after them at the direction of the Lord, conquered them, took all the spoils from them and came back. And now I want to make this very, very clear. This was before there was any Ten Commandments. This was before there was any covenant agreement at all with Abraham yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? Tithe was not established under the law. It was not established under the covenant. It was before the law. It was before the covenant, just as the law of marriage and divorce were. The Word tells us there in verse 17. As Abraham came back in the victory march, it said, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Mark that down. He was the priest 
of the Most High God. That's important to understand because Abraham did not just give tithes to anyone. He gave it to a specific person representing a specific God. He was the priest of the Most High God and he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of what? All. Notice that word. Now, we find in the book of Hebrews it says that always the lesser gave to the greater. Abraham gave to Melchizedek. Abraham gave to that one who was the representative of God, the high priest of God at that time. And he gave him all the tithes. Now, Abraham, had he been living in this day and age, said, well, now that may be bondage. I can only give, maybe I should give him some tithe and hold back the rest of it in case I see some better need to give it to. Now, I'm not being facetious. I'm telling you what the Word of God says. Abraham, the father of faith, in obedience, already established before the law, before the covenant, the old covenant as they call it, already understood that the tithe was to go to the servants that were doing God's work. And that's what it says here. And that was all of the tithe. That's what I want you to notice there. All the tithe to God's servants. Number two, Jacob. You don't have to turn to it, but in Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22, we find that Jacob as a young man, very young man, not even married yet, was fleeing from his brother Esau, and as he was out in the desert, he lay down, put his head on a pillow, and that's what he gets for having his head on a pillow, on a rock for a pillow. He had a dream. And that dream was a ladder going up to heaven, and the angels were ascending and descending. And when he got up from that, he said, My God, if you will supply my needs, and if you will be with me, and you will not fail me, I'll make you my God, and I'll give you tithes of all that I possess. Now, where in the world did he pick up that philosophy? I'll give you tithes of everything. It was already established. You understand that? From his grandfather Abraham before the law and before the covenant. The covenant agreement was now in effect, but not because the tithe did not come into effect because of the covenant. The tithe was already there before the covenant. You will find it goes through the covenant, the new old covenant. It comes right through the new covenant all the way through. God's never changed. Now, number three, tithe under the law. Leviticus 27, 30 through 33. Let's just turn to that quickly. Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. 27. I want you to notice that when they began teaching here under the law, began teaching about the tithe, they didn't go back and say, now let me explain to you what the tithe is. Okay, so if anybody here doesn't understand what the tithe is, raise your hand, I'm going to explain what the tithe is. No, they already assumed that they all understood the tithe, but you'll find that here in the law they instructed them how it was to be inculcated into the worship type of program that the Jews had. Verse 30, and all the tithe of the land, how much of it? All the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto a fifth part thereof. You know what he's saying? He said, all that you receive a tithe, that's to go to the Lord. Now, if you say, now, Lord, I can't afford to pay that right now. If you wait till next week, he says, just add 20% to it. That's what it says. A fifth part of it. Just add. So next week, if you owe $20 tithe this week and you say, Lord, I'd, I'd rather wait till next week, he says, fine. Next week, just add 20% more to it. Now, that's what the Word said to the Jews. They understood it. You know why? That interest was a little bit higher than what they could do if they go out and borrow it on the market, you see. 
So the Lord says, if you want to use the Lord's money, holy unto the Lord, you just pay him 20% more if you don't pay the tithe when it's due. I don't think too many Jews held up their tithe. I think they pretty well handed it in right on time because they'd rather go borrow it at 5 or 10%, maybe somewhere else. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. You know, there are many Christians today that believe that, well, it's just what I get in my paycheck. And they don't understand that everything that they have is from the Lord. I've had people buy and sell and buy and sell real estate, and they say, well, there's no profit here. That's, that's not, not tithe to be tithed upon. No, that, that's part of your income. I've seen people buy and sell stock, make tremendous profits, and put it right back in. They say, well, that's all. I go, no. Everything that God brings to you in the way of profit, God considers that as blessings upon you of which tithe is to be given to the Lord out of the very first fruits of it. Now, isn't what I say. It's what it's established all the way through the Word of God. You'll see it all the way through. He shall not search whether it be good or bad, neither shall he change it. And if he change it at all, then both it and the change thereof shall be holy, and it shall not be redeemed. You know what he's saying there? He's now, I want you children of Israel to understand what is established here concerning the, the tithe. If you've got your animals coming through, we'll say there's a hundred cattle out there, God gets ten of them. So you start running them through the chute and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, that, that's one of my best ones. Put it back in, take another one. Get that one over there that's got a little sore on his leg, you know. He says, you do that. Then I want you to take the one with the sore on his leg and the finest one, and both of them are redeemed by the Lord. They both belong to the Lord. What was he trying to show them? You don't give God the off-scouring, the used tea bags. The very finest goes to the Lord, and God will repay you accordingly. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. Number four, Numbers 18, beginning with verse 20. I want to show you now the purpose for which God intended the tithe in the Old Testament to be used. I told you already, well, under Abraham, who did it go to? Melchizedek. Who was he? Priest of the Most High God, the servant of God, the one doing God's service and work, right? All right, let's look here in verse 20. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. And behold, I have given the children of Levi part of the tenth in Israel for an inheritance. What? Oh. All of the tenth in Israel for an inheritance for what? Them to spend as they want to? For their service, to do God's work to do the work of the Lord, to take care of the temple, to take care of the, the tabernacle, to take care of the, the wood that needed to be brought in, take care of the altar, take care of all these things. All of the tithe was to be used for that work at their temple, for their service which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Neither must the children of Israel henceforth come nigh the tabernacle of the congregation lest they bear sin and die. Then verse 24, But the tithes of the children of Israel which they offer as an heave offering unto the Lord I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore I have said unto them, Among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. Now, verse 28, Thus ye also shall offer and heave offering unto the Lord, talking to the Levites now, of all your tithes. Now, here's, here's the picture. God says, People, you give the tithes to the Levites. Levites, you give your tithes to the high priest. You give your tithes to the high priest. That's the principle of its work. You receive the tithes for the work of the Lord's service. You take a tithe of the tithe and you give that to the high priest for Aaron and his sons and his family to live by. 
Verse 28 again, And ye shall give thereof of the Lord's heave offering to Aaron the priest. Out of all your gifts ye shall offer every heave offering unto the Lord of all the worst thereof. Oh, the best thereof, even the hallowed part thereof out of it. He said, Now you Levites, don't you get greedy. If the people bring to you the very finest to be used in the Lord's service, when you turn around and you give to Aaron and the priesthood, you give them the very best out of the very best. You know there are many churches today, and you know of them. There's many churches that have the philosophy, let's let our preacher and the workers of the Lord in the, in the Lord's work get along with the very least they can get along with, and that keeps them humble. If you can keep them poor, that keeps them humble. That isn't what God said here. Again, I want you to notice now, it was, the purpose was to support God's chosen servants. It was separate from the law. It was during the law, but it was separate from the law. It was during the covenant, but it was separate from the covenant, having been established long before it ever came into effect. Deuteronomy 12, number 5, Deuteronomy 12. A warning. Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter. God was preparing the children of Israel to go into the promised land. He said, you be careful that you don't do your own thing. He said, now out here in the wilderness, you have brought your tithes and offerings and done the right thing. Now, when we get into the promised land, God is going to establish a certain place for the tithes to be brought where you're going to worship God in a specific place, he said. This, it'll be called a temple when it is built, of course. But they, we found that out. But he said, God will choose that place, and you don't do your own thing and say, well, that's great. They've got it in Jerusalem, but it's easier for me to do it over here, or I really have got a burden for this particular situation over there. And uh, boy, I, I really get a witness when this brother talks to me over here. He says in verse 8, Ye shall not do after the things that we do here this day, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. He said, now, out here you may have had some liberty to go and do what you wanted to do as far as being faithful in your stewardship, but I want you to know now that when we get into the promised land, there are established principles upon which this has to operate. Verse 11, Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose. Who? God shall choose. To cause his name to dwell there, thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. Verse 13, Take heed to yourselves that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. In other words, well, I, I feel like I'd rather put my money over here. He said, don't you do that. Now, you see, that was bondage. God put them under bondage back there. They just had to do what God told them to do. Of course, when you're under grace, you don't have to do what God tells you to do, do you? Someone said that anything that we do that's less or enters into disobedience under grace that we did, if it's less than what we did under law, it's disgrace. It's not grace if it's less obedient. Verse 19, Take heed to thyself that thou forsake not the Levite as long as thou livest upon the earth. After that, don't worry about it. But as long as you're living and walking and breathing and God is producing money for you and finances for you and property for you, don't you forget what you're to take to do with the tithe of that. That is to support God's servants in the ministry. By the way, that doesn't mean just if the servants were obedient. I can get into this later, but I'll tell you right now. You remember when Eli's sons were disobedient priests? They took some of the offerings that they weren't supposed to take and they, they played whoredoms right there in the temple the people couldn't say, well, God's going to excuse me from doing that now because I don't agree with that particular prophet right now, that priest up there. See, I'm going to hold my tithes back. I'll teach them. I'll hold my tithes back, boy. And one of these days when they get to hurt, and then they'll come and follow and come to me and say, hey, won't you please help me again? No. 
They would have been judged then, but God judged Eli's sons because of their disobedience. I want you to know there are a lot of people today that use their tithe as a weapon against God's servants. Do you know that? If they don't totally agree with him, well, I'll just put him under the pressure. I'll just hold back my tithes and my offerings. And they're disobedient to God. Let God deal with that servant. If they know God has called that servant into the ministry and God has placed his hand upon that servant, then you cry out to God. I'll tell you one thing. I'd rather have somebody put me under pressure than have them turn me over to God if I was disobedient to the Lord any day. Number six, we're going to find that the practice is established in Nehemiah 10, 35 through 37. The children of Israel were disobedient.